Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will, break, they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pitom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you remain standing just for one more moment? Just take a deep breath. Just be present to being here right now. Remember, God's already present to us. We just get to be present back to him. And may we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. If you're younger than your mother, feel free to sit down. You're quick, you're quick, you're quick. Most stories about kings involve epic battles against evil enemies in order to save a kingdom. But these are mere shadows of the true story of the whole world. Our world has a king, a kingdom, and a royal story that's still unfolding today. If you're wondering where the kingdom is, look around you. If you're wondering who the king is, keep watch and listen closely. He wants you to know him because he already knows you. In the very beginning, before there was anything, even in the darkness, our king reigned supreme. Water and waves rumbled in the wild and waste, and like the light of 70 suns, the king's world, the king's words lit up the universe. He spoke and the earth burst forth, towering trees. The sky started buzzing with birds, bugs and bees, schooling things of all sizes swam in the bright blue seas. So much light and so much life flowed from the heart of the king. Then he prepared his kingdom for the very best thing. He created people who could love, laugh, and sing. Would his kingdom last forever? Could it even get any better? The very next day, the king rested on his throne and gave his people loving laws that set them free to flourish in the garden. He wanted them to fill the earth with a great big royal family. Adam was the first husband of the first wife and Eve was the mother of all life. God created them to rule and reign over the earth with him, to share his dominion in a world without end. What kind of king does that? Could it even be true that he would share his rule with me and with you? but you'll never guess what happened next. A creature full of hate, a scaly beast, radiant and awful, slithered through the shadows of the garden. And in the saddest moment there ever was, he convinced Adam and Eve to turn away from their good king and hand over the greatest gift God had given them. 
Before things got better, they got worse, so much worse. Death and darkness overwhelmed the world God had made, so he washed it with the wild rumbling waters that spread clear across the land. It seemed like the serpent king had destroyed the good king's plan. But those who knew God knew better. All creation was eagerly waiting. A hush fell over the king's army of angels. The stars and the planets hovered with hope and without any warning in a faraway land, the king appeared to a man called Abraham. God revealed a plan for a royal son. Soon the serpent king would be undone. For a long, long time, Abraham's family grew and flourished. Then one day, an evil king became worried that they would grow to be a kingdom greater than his own. So he made them slaves to build his kingdom out of dry, dusty stone. It was one of the darkest times ever for God's people. And the land was flooded with sorrow. That was an excerpt from the story of God our King. Now, holding that story in your mind, I want you to think about these words from the Scottish-American philosopher, Alastair McIntyre. Hold these words. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? Can you find yourself in this story? Exodus 1.8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. The storybook we just read and the story we're reading, they meet here in Exodus chapter one with a ruler who's dealing shrewdly with a people. These words, they come from Pharaoh's mouth But they're first heard from a dark spiritual being in Genesis 3, the enemy, the accuser, the deceiver, the one who is opposed, the devil, the snake. Now, Exodus, it wants you to see that Pharaoh is animated by the snake and then works against God's blessing. But different than in Genesis 3, here the snake, it's no longer by itself. Pharaoh gathers a people called Egypt. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they look and see Then they take and oppress the Israelite people. They force God's children into the fields like Genesis 3. They dominate other image bearers like Cain in Genesis 4. They commit violence like Lamech in Genesis 5. And they give these people harsh labor using brick and mortar, which is just a link back to Genesis 11, where the people of Babylon gather in revolt against God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Egypt, it's joining in the scripture's narrative of the city or the empire organized in a way that perpetuates the snake's plan. Now, while God and his family, they work to bless, Pharaoh and Egypt, they work to consume. God and his family spread and give life. Pharaoh and Egypt destroy life. The story, it says that there's an obstacle to human flourishing, and it's not just natural. It's spiritual. The story and the world that you and I are a part of, they're not a neutral one. Scripture names three enemies that of, to, of flourishing, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Exodus right here in the story is showing two of them, the snake and the city, or as the New Testament will call it, the world. The world in scripture is a shorthand for the ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a culture organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Thanks to John Mark Comer right there. The story, it's saying that humans, we live in a contested space. 
Hear me, people and things, they're not just messed up. We live in a spiritual battle and there is an animating force fueling the fire. This world, it's a contested space with powers in opposition to God's desire for human flourishing, the city and the snake. So non-rhetorical question, non-rhetorical, non-rhetorical. Talk back to me, ready to participate. Non-rhetorical question, non-rhetorically. Does this seem familiar? Notice that the story doesn't say which Pharaoh it is, right? We don't get his name and theologians debate about his identity. Some scholars, they note that the title Pharaoh, it's a combination of two Egyptian words that mean the great house, kind of similar to how we talk about the White House. Pharaoh originally applied to the royal palace and court, but during the 19th dynasty, he became, it became an honorific title for the reigning monarch. So why doesn't Pharaoh get named? Well, because the Torah, it's telling a story, a people story, and the whole human story through a specific people as a microcosm. Exodus describes what individuals, people, cities, societies, and systems devolve into under the snake's voice. Now, from here on out, I'm just going to use the snake and Pharaoh interchangeably. I'm going to say something, and we say it a lot around here. So if you're familiar, if this is like your normal family, you're, you're about to like hear something we always talk about. Notice that the snake's primary tactic is to use deceptive words. Deceptive words that perpetuate a narrative about human flourishing. In Genesis 3, the snake first whispers, God is holding out on you. See and take. You have to flourish on your own terms. In Exodus 1, the snake whispers, there's not enough for everyone to flourish. See and take. You have to flourish on your own terms. But the snake is a liar. The snake is a liar. Yet, this people gather under the snake's voice, they define good and evil on their own terms, and then another people group paid the price for it. Does that sound familiar? Have we not seen this story play out through human history? A people gathered around the fear of there not being enough for everyone to flourish, so they used their power and resources to subjugate, enslave, and murder the genocide of indigenous people, the reservation system, chattel slavery, Jim Crow, the internment of Japanese Americans, and the various systems that have led to unequal access to education, healthcare, housing, economic opportunities, dignity, and just human flourishing. Have we not seen what happens when a people trust a story that says we cannot all flourish? That's the snake's voice in the city. It's Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and Exodus 1 happening all over again. And y'all, this is not just an American problem. It'll later in the story become an Israel problem. But it's happened throughout human history on every continent, in institutions and in individuals because it's a heart problem and an ear problem. It's what happens when the snake's words are listened to and then scaled up in a society. So here we find God's people living in a contested space with spiritual evil behind the scenes, animating the problems, and the result is humans not flourishing. This sounds like a contested space, which should make those of us ask, how do we now, as God's people, live in our contested space and time? Verse 11, Egypt put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built store cities for Pharaoh, but the more God's people were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
When the first tactic didn't work, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose name were Shephira and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew midwives during childbirth, oh, I'm sorry, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Now the story, it zooms in on the midwives. Historians, they tell us that midwives were usually infertile women not having children of their own, a byproduct of the fall in Genesis 3. These are women who've been deeply impacted by the snake. Often these women, they were seen as useless at best and cursed at worst. Midwives, they were a low status of a low status group of enslaved people and we learn their names. We don't know the name of the most powerful man around the world that time, but we learn the name of these lowly women. Shvira and Pua. They're most likely overseeing the midwives. Now Pharaoh, he slithers in and he approaches, he speaks and he tempts, but these midwives, they don't seem uptight, they don't get aggressive, they don't despair, they resist. Their names, they mean something along the lines of beautiful, sparkle, and girl. Now, a Jewish reader would immediately notice the contrast. We have Eve, the mother who listens to the snake and it leads to death. But then there are these midwives who can't have children, yet they resist the snake and it leads to life for many. Verse 18, the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) It's like babies are just popping out. They're too quick. They're too quick. The snake's plan is being foiled and God's people are multiplying in a contested space because these women, they live in a a contested space through subtle acts of resistance against the snake's voice and the city's pull. Now, chapter one, it ends with verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Then chapter two, it just starts real abruptly. A man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now the story, it zooms in on another woman. This one, she's not delivering babies. She's a mother carrying one. Now, the Egyptians, they're after any newborn baby boy. And then you get pregnant. Could you imagine that? Like that sort of fear? Each day going, is it a boy or a girl? If it's a boy, is my baby going to get thrown into the Nile? Days turned to weeks, turned to months, and you can imagine the anxiety. You can imagine her prayers. You can imagine her questions. You can imagine her planning. You can imagine the sleepless nights. This courageous woman, she eventually gives birth, and the scripture says that she saw that the child was tov. The word is good. It's a callback to Genesis chapter one. It's new creation language. So she hides the child as best she could covering his cries, making sure that the child wasn't heard or seen. Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket, 
for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now Pharaoh ordered that babies be thrown into the Nile. And this mother, she places her child in those waters, but within the safety of a basket. The word is tevads. Actually, the word used for ark in Genesis 6. The story is portraying this mother like Noah who's joining in the deliverance of humanity. Not only that, this mother is also being portrayed as Abraham, like Abraham in Genesis 22, a parent trusting the voice of God about their child even when it's costly. Another woman quietly defying the snake and the city. Now the city turns again and it zooms in on this woman's daughter, who simply follows and watches and waits to see what will happen and then just does the next right thing. A midwife, a mother, a daughter, living in contested space by quietly and subtly defying the snake's voice and the city's power. Dang. (laughs) Like for real, dang. What these women did it was wild and inspired. Like, I get inspired reading this. But it makes me wonder, how did they do it and why did they do it? Because truthfully, y'all, like, I need that. And I think we want that in this moment. So how did they live in a contested space in a contested time when there's so many reasons for them to be afraid? Well, these women, they had every reason to be afraid, right? Afraid for the future, afraid if things will work out. Even as I say the word fear, like you get, some of you understand so closely and personally today, like what fear feels like in a body, afraid of what the city will do to the next generation, afraid that things will only get worse, afraid that hope will be shattered by disappointment. Fear. It's a part of the human experience and fear will probably never start being a part of this age because there are always things that are going to be threats. Threats to our lives, to our safety, our loves, our hopes, our dreams, threats to our plans of a good life and a flourishing city. See, I encounter fear at the place where my hopes for a good life, they intersect with my resources, limitations, and my inability to control outcomes. Don't they for you? See, every hope that we have for a good life, at some level, it always comes with a potential fear. That's why one of the hardest parts of any good moment, it's that nagging sense that something is gonna interrupt our story. On Tuesday night, uh, Yink and I, we got home after a really sweet time with our community. Shout out to y'all. It was late, and uh, our conversation before bed started about like the logistics of me packing a lunch for tomorrow, and which one of us has the car, and what time do we need to be where, and don't be late, and all that stuff. <laughs> Sorry, that hit close to home for somebody. But 20 minutes later, like everything in that conversation became undone and we're in a fight again. And I don't remember like what started it, but I remember how that tension felt when I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And so later I'm sitting by myself, Yinka's in bed and I'm sitting by myself in the living room on the couch and I have that like infuriating combination of hurt from what was said and confusion of why we're at each other's throats and anger with this person who in that moment felt like a stranger, despair that we're having another fight, embarrassment of my own immaturity and tenderness that resulted in me trying to just stay a little bit distant to self-protect for the next few days. What was that? A lot of it was fear. 
Fear about the good life I subconsciously, I subconsciously feel like it's being threatened by my wife. Fear about what this fight says about me. Fear about confronting the parts of me that wounded my wife. Fear about how we'll stop this pattern. Fear about how long it'll take to reconcile. My reactions, they reveal my fears about the story of the good life that I feel like was being threatened in that moment. And when that sort of fear drives me, it never leads to life or flourishing. So what fear is below the surface for you? And what is it doing to you? Thirsty, not trying to be funny. (laughs) Actually, think about that, though. Don't breeze by the question. What fear is below the surface for you, and what is it doing to you? What did that interaction, that work situation, that messed up plan reveal? Are you afraid of not being successful or praised, of not having those experiences, of not finding romance, of not finding beauty or meaning? Are you afraid of not being good enough or not being safe or not being in control? Are you afraid of not being known and loved or wanted? Are you afraid of things just not working out the way that you had planned? What does your life reveal about your fears and what do your fears say about your story? See, you see, we all become afraid. That is a part of the human experience. But the problem is that we often live motivated by our fears and we're unaware of them, which is why I find that this story, it's so compelling. It's so compelling to me. The midwives, they were motivated by fear. It's in the text. Did you guys see it? Verse 17, chapter one. The midwives, however, they feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. See, the fear the midwives lived by was the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that's what's in the middle of this whole story. Now, I grew up a Christian, uh, like in a Christian home with a Christian community. My name's Christian, so this should not be surprising. (laughs) Speaking of Genesis 1 language, my dad tried to give me the middle name Dominion. (laughs) I grew up very Christian, okay? Thank God for my mother. I, uh, but I was taught that God loves me and that he loves all people. I was taught that I don't have to be afraid of God as if he's some form of law enforcement. And yet, that I should also have a healthy respect and reverence for God, like I do when I cook on the stove or looking at the sun or when I'm playing in the ocean. That's a part of what the fear of God is about, but there's also more. Stay with me. Fear of the Lord, it's a phrase that's used about 138 times in the scripture. Some note that the fear of the Lord, it's a bounded phrase. You can't understand it by adding fear plus of plus the plus Lord. It's more like a run-on word. Fear of the Lord. Now, Adam and Eve, they are the first people in the story who fear God, but it's negative. See, they trust what the snake had to say. They trusted what the snake had to say. God's not good. He's not gonna care for you. He's holding out on you. He won't be good to you. You have to flourish on your own terms. He won't provide for you. The humans heard the words of the snake. They lived out of their own wisdom and definitions of good, good and evil. And as they heard this Father God coming close, they hid because they were afraid. Do you know what that's like? to do what you know you shouldn't, but then you can't seem to help and you're left with that combination of shame and regret and that feeling of being distant from yourself and others and God. 
Listening to the snake left humans afraid of the one who loves them and only wants their good. Now, Abraham is the second person in the story who fears God. Abraham, he heard God's voice, left everything he knew, and followed where God was leading. But when the road was long, and man, did we get that in life. When the road got long, Abraham, he was inspired in one moment, yet when the road is getting long and the journey keeps going, he struggled in one moment and in actually many moments to keep trusting God along the journey. You see, he finally got the thing he was wanting, the thing he was talking to God about, the thing he was praying for, only for it to be threatened. Do you know what that's like? To get so close and then things suddenly feel like they're taken again, they blow up again. See, Abraham, he's confronted by his fear, but it seems like he has this subtle realization that God did not bring him this far along the journey to not provide for him now. I'll say that one more time. God did not bring him this far in the journey to not provide for him again now. So Abraham, he chooses to give up the child he waited for because he trusted God's voice and he trusted God's wisdom and he trusted God's story. And it's in that moment that God says, I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. Do you see it? Abraham surrenders his whole life, choosing to live by God's voice and God's story. The scripture is showing us through Adam and Abraham that the fear of the Lord is about trusting your story to God's story. And that story, it begins with what we think about God and what we think God thinks about us. See, when we think that God, when God is bad, when we think that God is bad, we end up being afraid of God. But when we think that God is good, we learn to fear God. Said another way, we don't fear God because he's bad. We fear God because he's actually good. The fear of the Lord, it's about learning to live my life out of God's goodness. It's about letting God's voice define good and bad for my life and trusting my story to God's story. Now, to steal from a decent preacher, the fear of the Lord has more to do with attention and imagination than trembling. It's about inhabiting the story Most of the spiritual life is about paying attention to God and participating, paying attention to what God is doing and how God is doing what he's doing. The spiritual life is to then inhabit the story God is telling while living in the real world. They're always competing stories and the challenge and the invitation of spirituality is to trust God's story as reality, to trust God's story as the realist story. Thanks, Tyler. So what story are you trusting? And y'all, not just with like the big questions, but with the little normal parts of your life. Pay attention because the snake and the city, they whisper about your body. They whisper about romance, about resources and power, about what's good and bad, about the city, about you, about others, about God and about reality itself. Carl Truman summed it up saying, modern man seeks to be true to himself rather than confront thoughts, feelings and actions to objective reality. Man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth. This modern self then is not accountable to the theologians who preach on how to conform oneself to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to oneself, thus giving the rise to what Philip Reef described as the triumph of the therapeutic. The whisper to look inward as the compass for the good life, to look inward for wisdom and direction, That's the whisper of the city. That's the whisper of the snake. But friends, let me tell you, that's just another story that will overpromise and underdeliver. It does not lead to life and freedom. It leads to what the scripture calls slavery. 
which is actually the opposite of what we want. Like, don't you want to live well and flourish? It's your life. (laughs) Scripture's word for that is wisdom. Wisdom, it's not knowledge or information. Wisdom is the ability to live well even when things are complicated. Wisdom, it's good living. At least for me, like to do my life well in this day, in this body, in this profession, in this city, with my set of problems, with my set of pain, with my set of life circumstances that need their own forms of deliverance, I need wisdom. Don't you? We need wisdom. And the scripture, it actually tells us where to start. Let's read it out loud together. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now let's do it one more time with like a little bit of in us. The fear... The way we get wisdom, the way we begin to live well is by the fear of the Lord, by living our lives by God's voice and God's story. So let me offer you like a really practical way to start. Um, Have you ever had a moment where you're like observing your life and you witness someone handle a situation or a moment in life a lot better than you? Welcome to my marriage. So as I've observed the way Yinka lives, I notice she says this thing all the time. And it's so obvious. My name's Christian. I should be good at this. But she always does this little thing, like all throughout the day. It's so subtle. She prays. Pray. I can't tell you the number of times where we'll be talking about a thing. She's like, oh, you should just talk to Jesus about that. Or I was just talking to Jesus about this thing or no lie. She'll be like, you know, I woke up and I felt like Jesus told me what to wear today. I'm like. <laughs> and while that's a funny illustration, and actually it's not even an illustration, it's true. It's who this woman is. I'm having to relearn how to live in the fear of the Lord by watching this woman, my wife, who takes all the ordinary, subtle, little moments and emotions and fears and triumphs and all those and takes them to God in prayer. What I'm learning is if it feels huge, pray. And if it feels too small, like you're gonna bother God, pray. Constant communion with God, it's one of the easiest ways that we can live in the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not just new information for us in 2023. Throughout history, the global church has voiced that living in the fear of the Lord, it's essential to following Jesus. I'm gonna give you like a flood of them. Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, Macrina the Younger, from modern-day Turkey, origin of Alexandria, which is Egypt, Gregory of Nyssa, J.N. Manokran, the pastor and theologian from India, Watchman Nee, the well-known Chinese teacher, Latin theologians and black theologians, they all write on the fear of the Lord. Here's a summary of things that they've said. They say that it's the foundation, and let these like stir. Like I think even as I read things, I bet the Spirit of God will highlight things that are desires of your heart. They say that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of love. It's not driven by dread or punishment. It inspires love, obedience, and desire for God. It's how we grow in the spiritual life, humility and dependence on God. It helps us turn from sin, strive for holiness, and participate in the divine life. It gives spiritual resilience, hope, and endurance in the face of adversity. It provides strength and guidance in times of struggle. It encourages a deep trust in God's redemptive power, and it propels us to stand in solidarity with the marginalized, resist systems of oppression, and work towards justice. Happy Juneteenth, by the way. 
In particular, the early third century writer and martyr, Perpetua, she wrote in her prison diary about how the, how the fear of the Lord gave her courage and persecution and how it sustains believers through difficulty. See, the fear of the Lord, it's what we need. I think deep down, it's actually the word for the thing that we really want. And all it is, is a choice. Maybe that's why two of the most repeated commands in scripture are, do not be afraid and remember. Do not be afraid, as in, don't buy into the lies. Don't be misled by the stories around you. Instead, remember Yahweh. Remember what he's done and what he will do. Remember that he's good and he wants good and is working for your good. Don't be afraid and remember or simply said, trust your story to God's story. Live in the fear of the Lord. And while I don't got time and I actually just can't answer what living in the fear of the Lord looks like in this specific season for each of you and your unique stories, I do bet that the spirit of Jesus wants to highlight some things and he will show you. So actually, like, let's just pause for one second, take a breath, and just listen. Jesus, would you even right now show us what living in the fear of the Lord might look like for my life, for my story? I'm going to go out on a limb here, but even as I'm just being still, I felt like I saw a picture of a woman who was standing in front of a tall building, and um, it was like you were looking up, and the, sky, the building seemed like it was endless, and you knew you were supposed to climb it, and I even just feel like the spirit is subtly whispering, do not be afraid. Chapter 2, verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbanks. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. Now today's section of the story, it wraps up with one more character. It focuses on one more woman, Pharaoh's daughter. One of the children of the house that is committing a small genocide. And she's going to the Nile to bathe. She's bathing in the actual waters that were being used to drown Hebrew baby boys. And she hears the cry, sees the child, but doesn't operate like her father. She actually defies the snake. The text says that she has pity or compassion on the child. It's a subtle nod to the Exodus. It's Exodus' description of how Yahweh acts. A few pages later, Yahweh says that he has seen his children and has heard their cries. Then further in the story, he reveals himself as the God who is compassionate. Say that word, compassionate. One more time, compassionate. So in a twist of irony, by hearing the cry and being moved by compassion, Pharaoh's daughter operates not like the snake, but like Yahweh. Now, did you notice what might be the weirdest part of this whole story? The story starts with God's people in a contested space. But if you pay attention, you'll realize God is barely mentioned. 
Like, wait, isn't this supposed to be a story about God delivering his children? Where is this father? And how is he going to bring about the redemption and the flourishing of the world that is so messed up? Well, the Exodus scroll, it opens up by saying that God brings the redemption of the world through ordinary women. Women are the main characters of this story. Happy Father's Day. Part of the story I was given, God brings deliverance through normal, God-fearing people. It's the midwives who don't have the blessing of children rejecting immoral ways of doing their work while faithfully caring for others' children. It's a mother raising a child and then trusting its future back to God even when things are bleak. It's a sister who waits, watches, and does the courageous thing in front of her. It's Pharaoh's daughter using her privilege and power and resources to care for and even adopt a child on the margins. And it's also Pharaoh's daughter's servant who also goes unnamed, but whose day job serving plays a small role in God's redemptive plans. This moment in the story, it's all about God-fearing women living in a contested space and ignoring the snake and the city's temptations by doing their normal, everyday lives in a way that partners with God for human flourishing. How does God the Father bring about redemption and literally bring about new life, like literally bring about new life into the world? He partners with an azer. That's the Hebrew word first used by God to describe a woman, and it means this, it's crazy, a delivering ally. The father delivers his children from the snake by partnering with normal people who walk in the fear of the Lord. Exodus is telling us literally and metaphorically that by living in the fear of the Lord, it can lead to life for many. That living in the fear of the Lord, it can lead to life for the many. It's normal people like Mary who respond to God messing up her plans with I am the Lord's servant. It's people like Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, able to identify the subtle coming of the Lord through the womb. It's people like Anna, who are in her old age, but she's worshiping and fasting and praying that the Lord would break in and bring redemption to the human story. You see, we often want God's deliverance and restoration to come in big and obvious and flashy ways, but God typically works by partnering with just normal people who entrust their ordinary lives back to him through small acts of rebellion against the snake's voice and the city's bull. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. In this great reversal, Pharaoh's daughter, the snake's seed, names the child that will later become the snake handler. Mm. The Egyptian here would know that Moshe is an example, it's an Egyptian name meaning son of, which would actually stir up the question, who's this child a son of? That false god Pharaoh or Yahweh? But at the same time, the Jewish reader would also catch that Moshe sounds like the Hebrew word for drawn out, which would stir the question, is this story about the one who draws out or the one who is drawn out? To which the answer is, Yes. The sun drawn out from the waters will deliver God's children through the waters. Does this story sound familiar? 
The story of a son who has to be drawn out of an infanticide. The story of a mother placing a child in a basket and entrusting her story to God's care. The story of a son who delivers people in partnership with a father. The story of a deliverer who goes through the chaotic death waters first and then leads whoever trusts through those waters too. The story of a drawn out snake handler who will eventually become a drawing out snake crusher. This is the truest story ever told. It's what God did for Israel through Moses and what God would do for humanity through Jesus. And it's also what God is doing for the world through God-fearing people today. The question is, will you trust him in this contested space? Will you trust your story to his story? Alistair McIntyre, he put it best, so let's just end where we began. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Most stories about kings involve epic battles against evil enemies in order to save a kingdom. But these are mere shadows of the true story of the whole world. Our world has a king, a kingdom, and a royal story that's still unfolding today. If you're wondering where the king is, look around you. If you're wondering who the king is, keep watch and listen closely. He wants you to know him because he already knows you.